The Mod Pod is back. It's 2020, the year for eye care professionals, and we're here with a brand new episode. On tap, scope expansion, referral networks, and orbital disorders. Let's dive right in, starting with a look at how far optometrists have come by Sophia Lung, an ocular disease and refractive surgery resident at Oklahoma Medical Eye Group in Jenks, Oklahoma, and Nathan Lighthizer, an associate professor, associate dean, director of continuing education, and chief of specialty care clinics at Oklahoma College of Optometry at Northeastern State University. Here's Dr. Lighthizer with the rundown. What is an optometrist? One might venture to say that every optometrist will answer this question differently. But while the definition of our profession changes with time, it appears that the broad vision of yesterday's optometric pioneers is still the dream of optometric movers and shakers today. In 1901, optometry was recognized as a regulated profession for the first time in the United States, in Minnesota. During the next 60 years, significant strides in optometric education were achieved. In 1961, the first push for optometric scope came in Pennsylvania with a bill that would have authorized use of diagnostic pharmaceutical agents, also known as DPAs. That bill was defeated. But then in 1968, the LaGuardia Conference, known as the meeting that changed the profession, brought together progressive thinkers who saw a disparity between the high level of optometric training and the scope of practice in optometry of that day. This two-day informal think tank produced the following three conclusions, as recalled by Irving Bennett. Number one, optometry must discard its original concept of being a drugless profession dedicated solely to function and must expand its responsibilities. Number two, Optometric education should be encouraged to enrich its curriculum and provide the necessary courses of study that would sustain all challenges to provide the optometrist with the expertise to become a primary eye care provider. Number three, the state laws that govern the practice of optometry in the United States must be brought up to date and include provisions that would allow the optometrist to practice that which he or she is taught. Rhode Island became the first state to bestow optometric DPA permission in 1971. This event sparked a movement, and by 1998, all states had granted DPA and therapeutic pharmaceutical agents, also known as TPA, rights. Further, in 1998, Oklahoma became the first state to authorize optometrists to use lasers for certain treatments. This momentum has led to more states with expanded scope that includes laser use. As of today, Oklahoma... Kentucky, Louisiana, Alaska, and Arkansas. What can we learn from the ceiling-shattering conclusions that began with the strategic planning session of 1968? How do they translate to the flavor of today? We offer the following thoughts. Six new optometry schools have emerged in the past decade without increases in applicant volume. Some worry that educators may consequently be faced with a weaker pool of candidates. Optometric educational leaders and administrators are thus challenged to be progressive and to educate students to the highest level of scope. Programs including continuing education must evolve to maintain a high caliber of graduates and attendees. Knowledge and learning gaps must be identified and education must adapt to emerging trends. The movement of states toward expanded scope is significantly affected by both the laws and those who administer them by interpretation. There is a delicate balance in establishing proper restrictions mandated to protect the public while also adapting to the demands and challenges of health system capacity. 
a report by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to facilitate efficient, high-quality care in the health system concluded that, quote, states should consider changes to their scope of practice statuses to allow all health care providers to practice to the top of their license, utilizing their full skill set. Optometrists, this means you. This means us. This means participating with our state and provincial associations. Every increase in scope of practice leans on the political relationships between each of us and our legislators. In an interview with the authors of this article, David Cockrell, OD, the American Optometric Association Advocacy Chair, shared wise reflections from his extensive experience in this area. Relationships, he said, fostered by support and investment are critical to the passing of legislation. These foundational relationships mark the difference between a trusted, authoritative voice and just another lobbyist. As optometrists have a duty to care for their patients, legislators have a duty to look out for their constituents. They do so by making decisions based on information from those they trust. When it boils down to your word against another's, then with equivocation and careful wording stacked up against your stance, who will be believed? When you take your car in for maintenance, which mechanic do you choose? The one whose character you trust from past experience or one you hardly know? Walk alongside your legislators. Be invested in what they do because we are all constituents. From there, authenticity will come. Merit and trust must go before the ask. The ask must be founded on a mutual goal of taking care of people. Perhaps the biggest question of all is this. Do we believe that optometry must keep moving forward? The reality is that the eye care industry is changing. With respect to scope, many signs point to a shift toward more disease-focused eye care performed by optometry, catalyzed by technologic advances. Based on a survey conducted by financial services firm Harris Williams, it has been estimated that chains and mass manufacturers capture almost 50% of primary eye care revenue, despite providing less than 33% of all eye care services. This indicates increasing competition and decreasing market share for independent optometrists within the prescription eyewear market. Conversely, the fastest-growing population segment through 2020 is people older than 55 years, leading to an increase in age-related and lifestyle-related eye diseases. A projected 28% increase in demand for ophthalmologic services will outpace the 0% growth in the number of ophthalmologists through 2020. By contrast, a 27% increase in optometrists is projected from 2014 through 2024, supporting the assertion made by Harris-Williams that the shortage of ophthalmologists creates opportunities for optometrists to provide a greater role in delivery of services. So what's an optometrist? We leave this question for each reader to ponder, along with some timeless words from Eldon N. Hafner, OD, PhD, one of the pioneers of scope expansion who attended the pivotal LaGuardia Conference and who continued to be a beacon of direction for optometry's direction thereafter. Progress is science in a profession or in any field of human endeavor was and is always difficult. I did not raise this issue for the purpose of adding difficulties to our profession or indeed to those of interprofessional relations. Rather, I felt it was more from a sense of intellectual honesty, a compassion to better human welfare, and from a desire to see the professional discipline of optometry smoothly make the transition to a more meaningful and utilitarian role within the framework of a developing public utility healthcare system. What will be written 120 years from now about the optometric profession that we know today? 
Our colleagues across the nation continue to make efforts to educate legislators and the public on what optometrists are trained to do. Perhaps the archives of the future will boast of how those efforts led to optometry's expanded scope, making care accessible to all patients everywhere. May we maintain gratitude and respect for those who dared to dream differently, paving the way in the past, and for those who continue to pave the way today. There's a saying that progress is not inevitable. It's up to us to create it. Optometrists have certainly put in the time and have been rewarded for their efforts, but there is still work to be done. Besides scope expansion, another form of progress comes in the form of maximizing one's referral network. Let's hear some pearls from an established referral center. Robert Stutman, Director of Optometric Services at Select Eye Care in Maryland, shares some insights. There couldn't be a better time for optometrists to step up our collaborative efforts with ophthalmology colleagues to meet the needs of our shared patients. With the predicted physician shortage by the year 2032, ophthalmologists will need to spend more time in the OR and attending surgical consults, leaving it up to optometrists to take the lead in medical and co-managed surgical care. Add to this the efforts of the American Optometric Association and numerous state affiliates to expand scope of practice legislation, and optometrists are increasingly able to take the helm as primary eye care providers in managing all ocular conditions to the fullest extent of our licensure. In our referral center, we aim to seamlessly assimilate optometry with all ophthalmology subspecialties to maximize efficiency while enhancing the clinical experience of our patients. When eye care practitioners embrace their training and focus on what they do best, patients receive the highest quality care delivered most efficiently. In order to build a network in which patients can move effortlessly between their primary optometrists and multidisciplinary eye care offices for higher level medical and surgical consultation, optometrists should feel comfortable and confident that when they make a referral, their patient will have an easy and smooth transition to their colleagues' offices. This article offers tips on how to build trust between collaborative practices. The first tenet to building trust between referring doctors and our offices is education. We conduct regular continuing education seminars throughout the year to keep our network informed of the latest technologies and trends in eye care that we are implementing in our practices and with patients. We also arrange more casual lunch and learn meetings with individual doctors or practices and their staff. At these meetings, we reiterate the medical and clinical highlights from our formal continuing education seminars mentioned above, while reviewing the operational logistics of our staff assisting with getting patients to our office. Further, keeping an open line of communication between both optometrists and surgeons in our offices and our referral network also helps enhance the seamless referral process. It also serves as an educational component because we are able to provide chairside consultation to doctors who may need triage assistance with a patient in a timely fashion. This offers referring doctors the added security of knowing that they have a clear path to our office. Educating in this manner truly allows our colleagues to feel empowered by knowing that they are providing full scope care to their patients in all clinical scenarios. In my opinion, one of the best aspects of optometry is the flexibility our profession affords us as practitioners. The various modes of practice allow doctors to concentrate or specialize in specific areas of eye care. When building a referral network, it is therefore important to realize that not every referring doctor is set up to co-manage every patient the same way. For example, 
an OD in a commercial setting may not be equipped with a visual field analyzer or an OCT unit and may not even bill medical insurance. Conversely, a pediatric or vision therapy specialist may not feel comfortable co-managing a patient in need of cataract surgery. In managing our network of referring optometrists, we realize that each doctor practices uniquely and that a one-size-fits-all approach to meeting our colleagues' needs won't work. It has therefore become a priority to personalize our referral protocols to meet the specific needs of each of our network doctors. These custom protocols typically require an initial in-person meeting with a potential referral practice and its staff to establish their wants and needs from us as a referral center. Once we determine the extent to which that the doctor wants to participate in patient care, we take that information back to our office and educate our own staff, including surgical coordinators and doctors. Making certain that our internal protocols meet the distinctive needs of our referral source will maintain the continuity of the patient experience as we share care between offices. In some cases, this can be quite challenging as different referring doctors, even within the same practice, may have different comfort levels clinically and may require our practice to maintain individual protocols for doctors at the same location. For example, Dr. Smith may like to see one-day post-operative cataract patients herself but her partner may not want to see patients back until they are ready for their one-month post-operative refraction. Although maintaining this personal approach and constant communication between offices may be difficult and even laborious at times, we have found that making the extra effort to customize care for our referral network has only enhanced our relationship with our referral doctors and their patients alike. We keep track of our referrals so that we know which doctors in our network send us patients. We analyze these numbers on a monthly, quarterly, and annual basis so that we can spot trends and adjust our communication with individual doctors as needed. We even examine our data to determine exactly the types of patients a referral source may be sending us. For example, the number of Dr. Smith's new patient cataract consults may have increased, but her referrals to the retina specialist have declined. This would prompt us to touch base with Dr. Smith to find out if something has changed in her office or if there is something that we can help her with to make it easier for her to share her retina patients. Having this constant feedback helps us to guide our short and long-term planning efforts as they relate to our referral network. As optometry continues to take the lead in managing the refractive medical and perioperative care of patients, the need to vertically integrate with our ophthalmology colleagues couldn't be more apparent. Part of this collaboration requires referral centers to work jointly with primary care optometrists in order to care for patients' needs. We are constantly striving to enhance this relationship by communicating with and educating our referring doctors to ensure that they feel comfortable practicing to the fullest extent of their licensure. We also make an effort to show that our practice serves as an extension of their practice, allowing a seamless movement of patients between offices. This is truly the backbone of a functioning network. Some clinical scenarios may seem daunting and ODs may be tempted to refer them out but they can professionally and successfully handle many diagnoses, including orbital disorders. This last article of the episode is from our Complex Cases column. In it, Allison Bozung of Bascom Palmer Eye Institute, University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, breaks down the topic so it's a bit easier to navigate. The ocular orbit is a cavity comprising complex anatomic relationships that surround the globe. Despite their advanced understanding of the eye itself, 
Many optometrists struggle with the anatomy of the orbit from which the orbital disease stems. This article reviews both the anatomic relationships between the globe, orbit, and adjacent structures, and the pathophysiology of the orbital disorders that take place beyond the globe. The orbit is a compartment bordered by four walls and formed by seven bones. The medial wall is in part formed by the lamina papyracea of the ethmoid bone, through which the anterior and posterior ethmoidal neurovascular bundles pass. The paper-thin quality of this bone, along with the neurovascular foramina, may provide a passageway for infection and inflammation to spread from the ethmoid sinuses, making them the most common source of orbital cellulitis. The lateral wall, the strongest wall of the orbit, contains a zygomatic bone and greater wing of the sphenoid. The orbital roof is formed by the frontal bone and lesser wing of the sphenoid, together making up a portion of the cranial vault's floor. The orbital floor is composed of the maxillary, zygomatic, and palatine bones. It is commonly fractured in trauma, causing herniation of the orbital context into the maxillary sinus. Knowledge of the adjacent structures is integral in understanding orbital disease. The cavernous sinus is an important structure posteromedial to the orbit that is filled with blood from the superior and inferior ophthalmic veins and other tributaries. Key structures that run through the cavernous sinus include cranial nerves 3, 4, V1, V2, and 6. For any disease process affecting multiple cranial nerves simultaneously, therefore, consider involvement of the cavernous sinus or orbital apex. Other adjacent structures are the air-filled sinuses, which surround the orbit. These sinuses include the maxillary sinus inferior to the orbit, the ethmoid sinus medial to the orbit, the frontal sinus above the orbit, and the sphenoid sinus inferior to the cavernous sinus. Most optometrists do not encounter orbital disease frequently in practice. However, we should be comfortable enough to take the next appropriate step in management. When we evaluate a patient for orbital disease, a systematic approach is helpful. Consider now the six P's of orbital disease. The first P of orbital disease is pain. Pain can be related to inflammation and may be generalized or action-specific. When pain is gaze-evoked, consider inflammation or entrapment of the extraocular muscles. The second P stands for proptosis. Exophthalmometry is particularly helpful in determining relative enophthalmus or exophthalmus of the globe. Take note whether proptosis is anterior-posterior or axial, or if there is non-axial globe displacement. Axial proptosis suggests a mass of or within the muscle cone. Non-axial proptosis may suggest an extraconal mass, such as a lacrimal gland tumor causing the globe to deviate to one side. The third P stands for progression. Rapid progression typically suggests an inflammatory or highly malignant neoplasm, such as orbital pseudotumor or adenoid cystic carcinoma of the lacrimal gland. An insidious onset would suggest a more slowly progressive condition, such as orbital lymphoma. The fourth P stands for palpation. Palpating the periocular region allows a clinician to assess for induration, fluctuance, step-off fractures, and resistance to retropulsion of the globe. The fifth P, pulsation. Though rarely indicated, auscultation may reveal an orbital bruit, a suggestion of carotid cavernous fistula or AV malformation. The sixth P and last P, periorbital change. A comprehensive examination is still integral in the evaluation of the orbit. Assessment of the extraocular motility, pupils, IOP, 
and ocular health is paramount in forming a complete clinical picture. Trauma to the orbital region may be the result of an altercation, a fall, a sports-related injury, or a motor vehicle accident. In patients with trauma, we should evaluate for evidence of any orbital fracture. Signs of a fracture may include diplopia, restricted eye movements, enophthalmus, orbital crepitus, or maxillary hypoesthesia due to intraorbital nerve damage. In the event of a suspected orbital fracture, an orbital CT without contrast should be obtained. Not all fractures require repair, but patients with diplopia in primary gaze, diplopia lasting longer than one or two weeks, any evidence of entrapment, early enophthalmus, hypoglobus, and multi-bone or large fractures should be referred for further evaluation. Although uncommon, a carotid cavernous fistula may also be associated with orbital trauma. Signs include engorged conjunctival vessels to the limbus, elevated IOP, proptosis, restricted motilities, and engorged extraocular muscles. Thyroid-associated orbitopathy, also known as Graves' orbitopathy, or thyroid eye disease, is an autoimmune-related disease affecting 20 to 25% of patients with Graves' hyperthyroidism. It is often characterized by a rapid inflammatory phase resulting in diplopia, exophthalmus, lid retraction, exposure keratopathy, and rarely compressive optic neuropathy. The most important component of managing patients with thyroid eye disease is ensuring control of their underlying thyroid dysfunction. Smoking cessation should be stressed as it is the single most modifiable risk factor for development and progression of thyroid eye disease. In patients with mild to moderate thyroid eye disease, we may be managing exposure keratopathy and insuant dry eye. In advanced thyroid eye disease, it is important to rule out compressive optic neuropathy from severely enlarged extraocular muscles. Advanced condition may require additional treatment such as intravenous or oral steroids, orbital decompression, and strabismus surgery. For patients who present with rapid onset of significant eyelid edema in the absence of an underlying thyroid disorder, consider a diagnosis of preceptal cellulitis, orbital cellulitis, or orbital pseudotumor. Preceptal cellulitis, by definition, consists of soft tissue edema anterior to the orbital septum. It may be associated with a hordeolum, dacryocystitis, or cutaneous break. Preceptal cellulitis should be managed with a short course of oral antibiotics and close follow-up. Progression of preceptal cellulitis may lead to orbital cellulitis, which involves inflammation of the soft tissues behind the orbital septum. Signs of orbital cellulitis include diplopia, proptosis, chemosis, loss of vision, afferent pupillary defect, and often fever. Although preceptal cellulitis may progress to orbital cellulitis, orbital cellulitis is most commonly secondary to adjacent ethmoid sinusitis through the thin lamina papyracea. Management of orbital cellulitis consists of the hospital admission for IV or intravenous antibiotics and close inpatient follow-up. Without immediate treatment of orbital cellulitis, progression into the cavernous sinus may occur, which is associated with a high mortality. Orbital pseudotumor, also known as nonspecific orbital inflammation, can present in a nearly identical fashion to orbital cellulitis and should remain high on the differential. It can cause inflammation of numerous structures within the orbit. Often, the inflammation starts at the lacrimal gland laterally, and on imaging, there is minimal 
radiologic evidence of sinusitis. Management of orbital inflammation consists of an inflammatory infectious workup to rule out alternate causes and often treatment with high-dose oral or intravenous steroids. When patients present with any number of orbital signs, such as restricted motilities and proptosis, we need to keep space-occupying lesions in our differential. These can range anywhere from benign entities, such as a cavernous hemangioma, to more malignant processes, such as a metastasis to the extraocular muscles. Ultimately, the diagnosis is made by a combination of orbital imaging and tissue biopsy. Orbital disorders can be a difficult topic to master, but worthwhile. An organized and thorough approach is critical. Rapid assessment and appropriate management can lead to vision-saving or life-saving outcomes. That does it for this episode. You'll find a digital version of each issue on modernod.com, and if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ModOptometry, on Facebook at ModOptom, and on LinkedIn at Modern Optometry. One last thing, there will be more episodes of the ModPod this year, a total of 12, so you won't have to wait as long to get Modern Optometry content in audio form. We're excited. Hopefully you are too. See you next time.